Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast, their film and television adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And our show is created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tecumloops Te Swetmik territory within the unceded traditional lands of Swetmikulu. And we don't have a traditional territorial acknowledgement this week because this book takes place in the UK. Although I think the TV show in particular has some interesting things to say about who the indigenous people are of the UK. So maybe we'll get to that a little bit today. And what is the text in question? Okay, so uh, yeah, this week, Joe, we're talking about knots and crosses, which I need to start off with an apology because I've been saying Marjorie Blackman this whole time, and it is in fact Mallory Blackman. So knots and crosses by Mallory Blackman, just the first book we read for this week. Yes, not the, what, four sequels and I think three or two novellas? I actually did read one of the novellas. I read An Eye for an Eye because it was at the back of my book, and I thought, what the hey, I shall keep reading. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what to say about this series. So, you know, initial thoughts, like, I wanted to like it more than I did. And I felt like its approach to race was not as complicated as I hoped for. The book feels to me really like kind of middle grade in its approach. But the flip side is that I think the TV series is almost not YA at all. So I don't know. What were your initial thoughts, Joe? (laughs) I am, yeah, not dissimilar. I was surprised to see how warmly received the book was and how many people, kind of like Stargirl was a couple weeks ago, where people really said, oh, this is a classic, it's a game changer. And then when I see the reviews, I'm like, oh, everyone is saying it's appropriate for audiences 12 and up, which I would also quibble a little bit with because we are talking about bombings and pregnancies under duress and alcoholism like I don't know that the subject matter is appropriate for middle grade but the writing felt middle grade yeah I think so too so the premise of the series is basically well it's an alternate history and I have to say that I don't read a lot of alternate history but I often really enjoy it when I do so that's one reason that I was excited because I I like the sort of what if narrative and the idea here is what if people from Africa had colonized Europe rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. And so what's sort of frustrating to me about the series is that it's really rooted in the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Like that's basically the premise. And so what we Mm -hmm. see is even though there are obviously different cultural practices at the root, which is done way more effectively in the tv show by the way than in the book Mm -hmm. ultimately there's still slavery like there's still an equivalent of jim crow it's basically like well if black people were in charge it would be exactly the same and i find that to be a fairly unimaginative approach to the question of colonization that really lets white people off the hook because it's basically like look everybody's equally bad instead of being like hmm what is it about the history of European colonization that made folks think this was okay, you know? Like, there's none of that interrogation. Yeah, that was actually my biggest issue as well, is that I kept waiting for something to be different. And it felt like, oh, we're just gonna flip the color. 
and everything will remain the same, but won't it be illuminating to see it from this alternative perspective? And in fact, when you read a lot of the reviews, that's what people bring up as they say, oh, this really confronts racism and really forces you to take a hard look at it. And I just thought, does it? <laughs> These are all things that I already knew happened. And I don't know that I'm particularly enlightened. Like, I'd like to think I'm a well-meaning white ally, but also I don't have any idea about the lived experience of Black people or other folks who are subject to daily racist and microaggressions and so on. But a lot of this just felt overtly familiar and a little too simplistic for my liking. Yeah, I keep coming to that idea of it being too simplistic because when you boil all of sort of the history of human abuses to each other down to this idea, well, like everybody who's in charge would basically act the same way. Mm -hmm. You're, well, I mean, I already said you're letting people off the hook, but it's like, it's just not a very interesting way to explore human nature. Like if there's just this one default truth, but maybe we should get in and talk about what it's all about and then, and then we can complain. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So we read Knots and Crosses, which is the first novel in the Knots and Crosses saga. And we watched all six episodes of the first season. So Knots and Crosses is told from the perspective of two people, Sephi or Persephone, who is a cross and actually part of the ruling class of crosses. So she's not just any old cross. Her dad is a senior politician. He eventually becomes the leader of this country, which they call Albion, but is very clearly England. Mm -hmm. And Callum is a knot who has light skin in contrast, and he is in the difficult position of being one of the first knots to be accepted into a cross school. So very much playing on the history of segregation as it played out in the U.S., Mm -hmm. Which is actually another interesting thing that is happening in this book is like Britain has its own racist history, <laughs> but it's yeah. really taking all its moves from America's racist history. And I wonder if part of that is to make it more palatable to British readers so it doesn't feel quite so accusatory. Quite possibly, but it is a little bit odd that that element in particular feels very much directed towards a US or international audience, but then so much of the rest of it is like, no, but this is this is Albion. This is like very British. Yeah, and that's another thing to come back to this idea of alternate history. It's like alternate history, but not quite, right? Like all the technology is the same. All the government structure is the same. One of my big frustrations mm -hmm in the book in particular, is that it really is a very simple race swap. The TV yes. show works a lot harder to suggest like, well, if the colonizers came from different parts of Africa originally, how would that imprint culture? And so you see it in the language that people use with each other. You see it in the patterns on fancy clothing, right? Like the TV show works a lot harder to show it as an alternate history aesthetically. Mm -hmm. But the book doesn't make any effort towards that at all. And so it, it feels very um, basic in the book. Anyway, all this to say, obviously, Sefi and Callum are going to fall in love. They've been lifelong friends. Callum's mother used to work for Sefi's mother. She's fired unceremoniously at the beginning of the story. Callum has a sister and a brother. His brother is increasingly radical. His sister has been through a trauma and eventually, eventually takes her own life. And then there's their father, Ryan, who 
hates the world he lives in, but has ultimately not really accomplished much in his life and is sort of in this, I don't know, bit self-loathing. But anyway, all this to say, (laughs) Jude's very radical. He joins the Liberation Militia, which is a violent paramilitary organization that wants to overthrow the crosses. Yeah, which is very much seemingly founded on the IRA. Yes, that's a good point. Yeah, so this is where we do get into something like some kind of UK cultural connection. Mm-hmm. Mallory Blackman, it's a strength. She takes what she thinks is going to be useful to her story, but it's sometimes a little bit incoherent how the pieces fit together. Uh, anyway, all this to say the Liberation Militia plans a bombing of a mall. Jude is the one who is implicated in that. Callum finds out at the last minute and runs to the mall to save Sefi because he knows she's there. And this is it's the, all embroiled in the legal system. And ultimately, Callum's dad takes the blame on behalf mm-hmm. of Jude to protect Jude. And and it's funny because in any other book, you would be like, and that is the end of book one, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Absolutely not. Not here. No. And then this book continues for like, years afterwards as Callum gets increasingly radicalized and then participates in the abduction of Sefi so that they can blackmail her father and then they have relations and then he lets her go and then she have relations are you a republican like presidential candidate now (laughs) I did not lay hands on that cross girl (laughs) Um, they have sex Joe um when she's in capture. And this is a whole issue for me because... What, do you not believe in love, Brenna? Come on. Well, we're invited to believe very deeply in this love story, but they are constantly and exclusively in situations where there's a power dynamic at play, right? Mm-hmm. So early in the book, it's Sefi who has all the power. She could basically at any point turn around and be like, this guy's bugging me and he'd get arrested, right? Oh, at the very minimum, yeah. At the very minimum. And so she she has a tremendous amount of power, and also she has a tremendous amount of power socially that she doesn't really recognize, right? Like a lot of the book is Sefi maddeningly slowly coming to recognize that she holds privilege in this society. Maddeningly mm-hmm. slowly. Well, it is important to note, too, that she is a couple years younger than Callum. So, yeah, she is often presented as very naive and idealistic to the ways of the world. And I think part of that is the age difference. And part of it is that her privilege allows her to be like, oh, life is sunshine and roses. And Callum is like, everything sucks. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much the dynamic anyway. And then when she's kidnapped, the power dynamic shifts. But, you know. They have sex when he's her captor. And Mm -hmm. I know that this is supposed to be like Romeo and Juliet-esque. And oh boy, does the TV show ever crank that up to 11? Oh yeah, it does. (laughs) But I just really, I don't know. I was uncomfortable with those scenes. All this to say, Callum eventually is arrested for the kidnapping. Sefi is pregnant. Callum is hanged. He has the Mm -hmm. choice to encourage Sefi to have an or Sefi gets the choice if she has an abortion Callum will be spared if she doesn't he won't she doesn't he dies the end yeah I will say in a relatively lengthy book hmm, I don't want to say that there weren't a ton of surprises because I was constantly surprised that the book was still going and venturing into (laughs) new territory I don't mean that maliciously I just mean that 
there felt like a couple of natural ending points and then the book continued. And I was honestly quite surprised. But um, yeah, and it's worth that noting ending. for folks who haven't picked it up, it is 454 pages. Like it's not a short read. It's a fairly quick read because it's not particularly yes. complex, but it's not a no. short read. It does go on and on and on and on and on. Mm-hmm. But then you get to that ending and all I could think of was, okay, now you're introducing the game changer. It was like, oh, do I want to read book two? Because the answer mm-hmm. was almost maybe, even though mm-hmm. I really hadn't enjoyed a lot of what had come before because it felt so brazen. Like I'm trying to think of other YA books that are willing to kill off their romantic lead at the end of book one. And the list is very slight. Yes. Yeah, I do agree. And I think it surprised me. Like I assumed there was going to be some 11th hour salvation for Callum. And when there wasn't, Mm -hmm. I will say I was really shocked. It's actually probably why I went on to read um, An Eye for an Eye the novella that was a part of my copy. And in that novella, the kind of gimmick of Knots and Crosses is that it's focalized by both Sefi and and Callum. They take a chapter Mm -hmm. each. They flip back and forth. And Eye for an Eye does the same thing with Jude, Callum's older brother, and Minerva, who is... <laughs> who is Sefi's terrible sister. And so it's, you know, it's the same idea structurally. And basically Jude has come to Sefi's apartment where she's living because her parents have kicked her out. And he's gonna kill her on Callum's birthday. And that's sort of the premise of the novella. But hmm. what's interesting is that one thing the book does really well, I think, in spite of the lack of complexity and a certain amount of flatness, is because we focalize from both characters, and Blackman really does give us two distinct characters, two distinct personalities, and those characters are pretty well fleshed out in the worlds they live in, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. Like, I find Sefi uh, extremely annoying. Oh, yes. Yeah, unfortunately. And she narrates half the book. And Callum is no great shakes either. Don't get me wrong. But I think it has to do with the the inability to see her own privilege that we see in Sefi's mm-hmm. character that is frankly exhausting. Oh, yes. Yeah. I mean, I think we all know a few Sefis in real life. And <laughs> you just kind of want to give them a bit of a shake and say, like, wake up. It's interesting. Sorry, I'm coming back to what I said off the top of the show this now, this is about the TV show. We should transition, I guess. I don't know if I have anything else to say about the books. Like, I I appreciate what Mallory Blackman is trying to do, and I don't think it's particularly successful. And I just wanted a lot more complexity to the way the conversation about race happened. I think it's just too easy to say that anybody in a position of power would be abusive because it denies that there are any kinds of differences in worldview between cultures, and I just don't think that's true. Yeah, it actually reminds me of a couple of conversations I had last summer when the Black Lives Matter movement was really gaining traction in the United States. And I would see people sharing art that did a similar thing to what we're seeing in Nazis and Crosses, where it was like Black oppressors and white Mm. enslaved people. And people were sharing these images and saying, like, isn't this so powerful? Like, doesn't this really force you to sit with your discomfort about what's happening. And all I could think of was, no, no, it absolutely Mm. does not. All it does is suggest that people in positions of power will ultimately abuse that position. And frankly, that seemed like a very white perspective. Like Mm -hmm. this is all about getting rid of white guilt. 
for the people who are uncomfortable with racism. And mm -hmm. honestly, I went into reading the book knowing that Blackman was in fact a person of color. But if you had have just told me the premise and given me the book, I would have thought it was written by a well-meaning, but frankly, not fully informed white individual. Yeah, it's interesting. It makes me think about the target audience for a book like this, you know, selling into a market in the UK, publishing still primarily controlled by the interests of white readers. It mm -hmm. feels like a book that's designed to teach sort of white middle graders a lesson about race at the expense of having an actual conversation about race that's more inclusive. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And this is like, this is from position of ignorance, right? But if I was reading this from any knowledge of, you know, like how different African communities like arrange themselves traditionally or what tribal structures look like in those communities or those kinds of things, like, I think I would be really annoyed <laughs> by this mm -hmm. book and the simplicity with which it approaches because surely all of that plays out, right? It's like suggesting that the British Empire in particular isn't profoundly shaped by a patriarchal religion, right? And a patriarchal governance structure. Like you can't pretend those things don't matter or have some sort of impact in how the society, the colonial society arranges itself. Like it just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the other things that struck me and it it's very tangentially addressed in the TV show, which we'll switch to in a moment, but particularly in the book, it also feels incredibly didactic. Like there are knots and there are crosses, like you are one or the other, and there is nothing else. It boils it down to a level of simplicity that is like you versus them. It's like you're, you're one side or the other. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, but there's far more complexity. It's not like all whites are in it together and all blacks are in it together. Like that's just so simple. Well, there are moments in the book where you can tell Blackman wants to tell a different kind of story sometimes. And the example I would draw on there is the teacher, right? There's one of the teachers right. at Callum's school who is horrifically abusive to him, doesn't want him there. And Callum discovers, because one of the teachers divulges it to him, that this teacher who's particularly violent and cruel to him and is constantly talking about how there's no space for white people and white blood is inferior and all this stuff. Well, that guy's mixed race. Mm -hmm. And that's the conversation. I was like, we got, I got to that part in the book and I was like, Oh, okay. Okay. Here okay. We like, here, here we, we go. go. Here we go. This is going to be like, this is going to complicate his worldview. It's going to complicate the teacher's worldview. And instead nope. it just gets completely shut down and it's not mm -hmm. explored at all. I was so disappointed because, you know, to me, that was the glimmer of the awareness of the complexity that was necessary for the story to really succeed. Yeah. And I think instead, Blackman ends up leaning into her more violent tendencies mm. and focusing on like, oh, well, an escalation of conflict must result then in the loss of life and increasingly violent tactics. And I just found that I was far less interested in that. Like, I wanted to see people try to negotiate the systems of power in this world. I didn't just want it to be kidnappings and bombs. Well, and I think part of it is that the overthrowing is only something you buy into and are persuaded by if there seems like there's some out or there's some positive outcome. But Blackman almost sets up for us this world where the only thing that will happen if 
the liberation militia succeeds is continued bloodshed and violence, right? Like, mm-hmm. you don't get a sense that there's this other way to govern. And in that way, it's a really cynical book because the idea is that mm-hmm. this is humanity. It was ever thus and it ever will be thus. If listeners have read the other books in the series, I hope they'll write in and let us know if there is something less cynical that emerges. But I found the book itself actually wildly cynical. Yeah. Okay, well, why don't we transition and we can talk about whether we feel the same about the show. Let's do. Let me remind you of a certain truth. There is strength in difference. Things are never going to change, are they? You can keep a secret, can't you? Crosses will be exposed for what they are. The Norse are content to see our culture swept away. Every time I see you, there she is too. You tried to kill us! This is what happens when you push people too far. You're afraid of dying. Not if the cause is right. So as we mentioned, this is a BBC production. This is series one. There are six hour long episodes. And folks, if you are listening in Canada, it is available on CBC Gem. If you're in the States, it is available on Peacock. And I just happened to see it as I was doing some research on the costuming. If you're listening in Australia, it is available on Binge, which is a thing. (laughs) Can I just say, Joe, that Watching this drove me to uh, explore what is on CBC Gem. And mm-hmm. we are not paid shills for CBC Gem, but there's a lot of good content on there. For the most part, yeah, I go to the fun. CBC app for my kiddos' cartoons on Saturday mornings and for my Coronation Street on the live stream on Sunday mornings. And have not explored the back catalog. There's a lot of stuff there. I don't know. If you're Canadian and you haven't checked it out and you've run out of Netflix, you should. And it's free. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, there that's go. a good selling feature. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so the show is, it doesn't really have a showrunner. It kind of had a bit of a head writer who is Toby Whithouse, and he is the gentleman behind Being Human from back in the day. And as our cast, we have Masali Baduza as Sefi, Patterson Joseph as Kamal, Bonnie Mbuli as Jasmine, Kike Brima as Minerva. And then when we move to the McGregor clan, we've got Jack Rowan as Callum, Josh Dillon as Jude, Ian Hart as Ryan, the Patriarch, and Helen Bazendale as Maggie. And then rounding out the cast, we have Jonathan Ajayi as Lacan, who is in the TV show version, Callum is trying to get into an exclusive Mercy Point military academy. And this is not only Sefi's boyfriend, but also the person who makes Callum's life miserable. And then the final person of note is Sean Dingwall as Dorn, who is... He technically is a character in the book. He's like the second in command of the Liberation Militia. But here he is kind of the de facto leader that we see. And he's very nefarious and mustache twirling. Yes. Yeah. That Actually, that twist at the end of the first episode where he, he kills the knot in the hospital bed. I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this is a very different show. I should say that our savvy listeners will remember Helen Baxendale as Emily from Friends. Ross's fiance slash wife on friends oh really is she 
Yep. Oh. Yeah, Emily Waltham. Yep. Okay. Um, I didn't peg her. I mean, she's 20 years older, bless her. <laughs> yes, right. Right. Of course. <laughs> the big distinction with the TV show is that it focuses on a shorter frame of time. So we don't really get to see Callum and Suffy as kids. We do mm-hmm. learn that they have that shared history, but really the show opens with them reconnecting at this party that Callum gets roped into, I guess, cater waitering as part of his mom's business being the personal assistant slash nanny slash housekeeper extraordinaire for Sefi and her family. Mm-hmm. And then over the course of the six episodes, we basically cover almost the same ground as the book, but everything is a little bit simpler. So we're not going to as many different places. We're not spending as much time on them. And as you mentioned, yes, the Romeo and Juliet love affair really gets dialed up to 11. I do want to say that everything is simpler with the exception of the backstory and the history, which I think the TV show does a much better job of explaining. Mm-hmm. In the first episode of the TV show, you learn the mechanism by which this society has come into being, which the book is actually never interested in <laughs> explaining in any kind no, of detail. Shockingly not, yeah. So in the in the TV series, you find out that basically several nations in West Africa combined and became an empire themselves that went on to colonize Europe. Like you don't even get that much information in the book. Mm-hmm. And there's a, a great world war that splits control of the different parts of Europe to different African factions. Mm-hmm. And so you've got mainland Europe under sort of one rulership and Albion, which is Great Britain and Ireland, as well as Northern Europe are under the other part. And, and they're much more strictly controlled. So in the TV series, and this is an outlet that the book doesn't give itself, mm-hmm. in the TV series, you know about all these places that are freer, right? So mm-hmm. Mali effectively controls the rest of Western Europe and people are allowed to be in mixed race marriages in Mali. And in on the African continent itself, things are much easier and more relaxed. And so there is all of this hope <laughs> around mm-hmm. the edges and the series introduces you to it right from the beginning. So I think that is a really powerful change that makes the show a lot more watchable. Even when I didn't always love the plot choices Mm -hmm. it wasn't quite so i know i've used the word cynical too much but it didn't have that same vibe for me as the book did yeah i think one of the other differences is because we're freed from the constraints of being trapped in either callum or sefi's perspective you hinted to this off the top the tv show actually becomes a bit more fleshed out in terms of all of these other people become characters in their own right so it's not as strictly ya as we're used to But I found it really helpful to have all of these scenes with Kamal. He's a very ambitious politician who has his eyes on the prime minister. And we see a lot of scenes with him battling her for Mm -hmm. either more restrictions or less restrictions based on whose perspective you're focusing on. And I thought all of that was really fascinating because it's a perspective we never get in the book, but we get a greater Mm -hmm. insight into 
is it that his perspective is the one that is all on clamping down or is it the nation as a larger mm-hmm. capitalist enterprise and so on? And the TV show makes aims at saying, oh, it's really him. And the story mm-hmm. then becomes more personal because actually there is one other character that I haven't mentioned, which is a figment for the TV show called Yarrow. And that mm-hmm. is Kamal's mixed race son that he had an affair with a white woman. And so it's part of where his racism stems from is the fact that he doesn't like himself because of his own past. Yeah. And he has this secret that would undo his political ambitions because he's very much successful as a politician because he has positioned himself in opposition to the prime minister, who is clearly at the forefront of trying to open up society more, right? Mm-hmm. And he's he wants to lock it back down. There is an illegitimate son in the book, but again, it's another one of these threads that we get that's never picked up or dealt with. So we just know that Kamal in the book has an illegitimate son out there somewhere. And that's all we get. And, uh, you know, I use the word illegitimate advisedly because within the world of this narrative, this matters a great deal, right? Like he can't be seen to have these kinds of skeletons in his closet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess one of the other things that I appreciated in the condensing of the timeline is that we also don't get things like Sefi experimenting with alcoholism like her mother. Yeah. And even in the TV show, Jasmine has... A bit of an addiction problem, but that's almost righted by about the halfway point. So she inadvertently or purposefully overdoses at one point, and then that gets wrapped up into the hospital bombing, which takes the place of the mall bombing in the book. And basically from that point on, she doesn't have much of an issue anymore, which is unrealistic, but also... Yeah, well, Jasmine is altogether a more sympathetic and interesting character in the TV series than in the book. And again, in the book, this is another place where we get a thread that's dropped but not picked up, right? So in the book, um, we find out that Ryan's legal expenses have been paid by Jasmine. Out of guilt. Out of guilt, right? But it's never explored. It's just kind of like, well, she wrote this check and then went back to drinking. Mm Mm-hmm. Whereas in the TV series, that relationship between Jasmine and Maggie is actually one of my favorite parts because it's very complex and interesting. And they're two such great actresses that when they play off against each other, I love those scenes. Oh, I think the highlight for me of the TV show is the two mothers and then Kamal as a complicated but still hissable villain. Unfortunately, Mm -hmm. I actually think the TV show falls the most flat when it is focusing on the Romeo and Juliet love affair. That's not to say that the two younger actors aren't doing good work. It's just that it's very tropey. And actually in reviewing reviews of the TV show, particularly North American reviews, this is where people had the opportunity to come down hard on the series and say, oh, well, they're just doing YA love stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not just Romeo and Juliet E, it's very Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet, like (laughs) even the Knots Plus Crosses logo, right? And the way they're Mm -hmm. styled in the intro, like all of it- Oh my gosh, those opening credits, yes. (laughs) Yeah, all of it is sort of that evocative opulence of that story, of that telling of the story. And so, you know, you're kind of primed for it. And 
I don't think there's anything wrong with those two performances either of of Sefi and Callum. It's just that it's just about the least interesting thing going on in the series. What's way mm-hmm. more interesting is the larger history, the shifting politics, and the mums, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. There's a moment, I think, at the end of episode two. So as you mentioned, the leader of the LM, Dorn, he murders a fellow knot at the end of episode one to excite a race riot. And he uses this as a as an opportunity to like make gains as a terrorist movement. But inadvertently, he also ends up getting Ryan fired because Ryan works for this wealthy knot who fashions himself as like treading water between the two races. And Ryan tries to broker for this boy's father to get time off to attend his funeral. And this wealthy businessman says, no, you know, this isn't how I run my business. And when Ryan goes behind his back, he ends up getting fired. And it causes a cascade where it's like the McGregor's never have money and they're all getting fired at the same time. And life is horrible. But -hmm. I thought it was fascinating because of that one scene where this one not businessman says, you know, he's not across. I'm not like you. Yeah. You know, this weaponizes Ryan to a certain degree, too, because he's like, well, you can't be in the middle. You have to be one side or the other. And it's little moments like that that the book seems to not have time for that I do feel like the TV show is willing to at least start to broach that made me more interested. Yeah, I agree completely. And I think that's part of why it's just less interesting to watch Sefi and Callum, although I was intrigued to see how it went. Interestingly, I discovered, Joe, so the end of the sixth episode, Callum does not die by hanging, but Sefi is in fact pregnant. It's very similar to an alternate ending that Mallory Blackman wrote herself for, um, you know, in the UK, they have this World Book Day event where YA writers will do like special editions or novellas of popular stories that get sort of distributed Hmm. for free. And in her, one of the ones she wrote, I think in 2003, she did an alternate ending where, yeah, they they get away and they, they make a run for it. And they're caught actually by Jude, who then shoots Callum at the same moment that Callum shoots Jude and then Sefi gets away anyway. So it's, you know, equally like, mm. oh my God, to every other uh, ending Blackman seems to write. But I just thought it was interesting that they went for the obviously much more hopeful ending. It yeah. makes sense because it's hard to imagine killing off a romantic lead in a series like this. But the mm-hmm. flip side is, I guess from season two on out, this is a very dramatically different series than the books because it's going to have to be, right? Yeah, unless they're just playing a long game and they plan to kill Callum later, but it doesn't seem like it. It's a smarter and safer move for the TV show to Mm -hmm, make because, yes, mm -hmm. you don't lose your romantic lead who is, you know, punky for those who are interested. And Is he? uh, Not really for me, but I'm sure to some. (laughs) I think the other thing is that it avoids doing the replication, which I think, Blackman was aiming to do in the book, but it didn't work for me, which is like Ryan goes to jail and then he dies and then Callum goes to jail and he also dies. And I felt like she was trying to do something in the book where, oh, it's cyclical, it's unavoidable, it's generational, it's familial, but it never actually gets explored. So it just felt like, oh, we're back to the prison. Mm hmm. 
And I think the TV show did it better by saying, okay, yes, we're going to show the injustices that can happen within the criminal justice system, but also we're not going to do it twice because that's not interesting. Yeah, I fully agree with that. I really do. One thing I want to bring up that the series toys with, I, I suggested it off the top, is this idea of indigeneity within the UK mm-hmm. is sort of played with, right? And one of the things that the knots do that the crosses sort of scoff and laugh at is the knots seem to have maintained, sustained what appear to be like sort of Irish Celtic traditions, right? Oh, do you mean that night where they just get totally wasted and it looks like St. Patrick's Day? <laughs> Well, I was going to talk about the whole funeral scene and the waking and everything, right? And and mm-hmm. how um, how many of those traditions come from sort of an Irish heritage. And I just, I find it interesting, right? Because the British Isles as a geographic space is one that has been conquered over and over and over and over again, right? Right. Starting with 1066 and working towards the present. And so... There are a lot of people who claim indigeneity to the British Isles. And it was really interesting seeing the series be like, oh, we've adjudicated it. It's the Irish. The Irish are the indigenous people to these islands. Like it was just like, oh, okay, that's, oh, all right, that's what we're coming down on. And they've won. (laughs) The crosses are so um, sort of dismissive of those traditions. And again, it was another one of those moments where it was like, well, anybody who's in a position of power will mock other people for their beliefs. And I was I was watching that scene unfold and they they are so over the top with the way they depict mm-hmm. sort of Irish funerary rites and the crosses are so mean about it. And I just thought like, this is another one of these moments where it's all just a bit too obvious for me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I also thought that that was amusing, but I did kind of appreciate that it almost felt a bit satirical. Like, mm-hmm. if you're going to give white people a holiday, of course it would be heavy drinking Irish holiday. <laughs> I wonder what Welsh people think when they watch this, because there's another group who have some claim to a certain certain kind of indigeneity to the British Isles. Anyway, the show, much like the book, is very interested in the easy and the broad in mm-hmm. depicting culture, which is kind of ironic given the central theme, allegedly, of the project. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Can we talk about one more thing before we move into some YA bingo? Absolutely. Okay. So if nothing else, like I, I recognize that we've been a little bit lukewarm on both of these texts, but I will say that if folks are at all interested in the show, at least watch one episode exclusively for the costumes. Oh, any episode? Any episode. I agree. Literally any, because the costuming by DeHantis Engelbrecht and then hair and makeup by Nadine Prige is next level gorgeous. I literally had to have conversations with Brian about how can I talk about this from a white perspective without seeming like I'm appropriative, but I coveted these costumes. They are so just fantastically beautiful. It's honestly an example of black pride that I didn't realize 
I wasn't getting from the book. Like you just get, mm. oh, they're rich. Oh, they're powerful. But then you see it embodied in the hair, the makeup, the jewelry. And I found a little featurette on YouTube that talks a little bit about how they approached it and, you know, how they used abstract prints and vibrant colors. And it's very much based from different parts of Africa so that you are getting that mix, that range of cultures. And even things like Mandika warriors inspiring the hairstyles at Mercy Point. So like the tapered bun in the back that you see is like very specific to a particular culture in Africa. And I just thought it was really exceptionally well done. It does make it very clear what's missing from the book when you start to see these kinds of yeah, well, it's it's the iconography of the supposed colonizer, which is absolutely mm-hmm. missing from the book series, right? In the book series, we just hear about the different designers that Sefi wears, but we don't know anything about them. Yeah, it doesn't mean anything. No, it's one of the ways in which the sort of generic race swapping in the book is a real disappointment, right? Because it's an alternate history, like show me something alternate. <laughs> so mm-hmm. one of my favorite subtleties is the way whether you're a knot or a cross, your formal wear is clearly influenced by various West African sort of traditional patterning. And, mm-hmm. you know, even the knots will be wearing like a suit, sure, but with a waistcoat in that kind of patterning. And so yes. it's it's a really good indicator of who has the cultural supremacy in this world and what is considered sort of professional or what is considered dressed up. I agree with you. I think it's done absolutely well. Yeah, I really loved how the knots were all wearing very similarly informed designs, but like the colors were muted. They had wear and tear. So you could see like mm-hmm. they had basically gotten watered down, less vibrant versions of the dominant culture. And they, but like because they were living in that world, that was the selection of clothing that they had access to. Mm-hmm. I kind of loved it as a visual critique of just how a dominant society can drive things with regard to things like fashion and even dialogue. There were terms that both groups used like baba that you Mm -hmm. wouldn't normally ever hear like a white person say, but because it had been like usurped into the collective consciousness, it was like, oh, this is just regular nomenclature for everyone now. Yeah, it's really clear who is the dominant culture in the society. The TV show does mm-hmm. that so much more effectively than the books. It's it's actually kind of shocking. Yeah, yeah. Okay, shall we move on to some YA bingo? Yes, please, please, please. Bingo! Not a good bingo. Okay, I have the card open, but uh, I don't know. I have to say I've struggled a little bit with this one. Part of me, like a really cynical, mean part of me, wants to say that the romances are hollow, but they aren't. I mean, they don't work very well, but they're not hollow within the world of either the book or the text you know what i mean yeah it's not that they're hollow they're just kind of like shallow yeah exactly so i will say i have abuse on my card okay for obviously every everything that callum experiences like every day of his life (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) i have borrowed time for the back half of the novel basically where you know he's kidnapped her and she's pregnant there's obviously a time limit on how long this is going to be able to play out. So I've borrowed time mm-hmm. for that. Obviously, dead body, more than one, multiple, yeah. multiple dead bodies. 
Well, particularly in the TV show where like Danny's death drives a whole couple of episodes and like it pops back up in the final episode where it's revealed that Dorn is actually a mastermind all along. Yes. And also in the book, I'm thinking about just the image of Ryan throwing himself against the electrified fence at the prison, which stuck with me for some time. And then coincidental classes, which you can argue with me if you want to, but the the history class in particular, mm-hmm. which by the way, can we talk about how he's in a history class and he's taking all these lessons and we still don't learn any world building? It, it was shocking, honestly. <laughs> it's very frustrating. Um, yeah, I'll be honest, I don't have a ton more. I have a house porn for... Safi's house because I mean mm. they're so rich they live in what looks to be a McMansion. Yeah, they do. They do. It's enormous. The gardens in particular during those party scenes. I want the gardens. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> do you remember garden parties, Bruna? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, me neither. I tried to think if there were any perfect dates because particularly in the book, there are all these moments where Callum and Sophie hang out at the beach, but I don't know that I would call them dates. And so often they just end up fighting and bickering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And really the only other one that comes to mind is when they try to take the trip on the train and it just ends up becoming this class in racist, I was about to say etiquette, but... Basically, it's like a little capsule of microaggressions in which they get stopped by the train police officer who asks Callum, what are you doing? Where are you going? And it doesn't matter what Sophie says. Mm -hmm. He only wants to hear from Callum as though he can't believe that these two people are even next to each other. And that's not a perfect date. No, and it's another frustrating example of how Sophie doesn't seem to understand how her own society that her dad is in charge of works. Like It's Mm -hmm. really annoying. The only other one I would suggest is maybe aged up because Safi being 14 in the book explains a lot of her character and she's clearly not 14 in the series. No, because she's about to go off to university. Yeah, exactly. So that would be my only other suggestion. Yeah. So uh, I guess not a good representative YA text because we are nowhere near a YA bingo here. Not even remotely. Absolutely not. (laughs) okay well uh, that was knots and crosses didn't love it but wasn't mad i watched it and for something that's six hours that's all right that's you know i was surprised because i know we actually carved out some additional time because we anticipated this would just take us longer and Mm -hmm. yeah the book is a really easy read and the tv show i just kind of watched an episode every other day and was like yeah this is good I'm happy with this. Yeah, no, it was good. (laughs) Okay, so if you want to let us know, particularly if you've read the rest of the series or if these books really spoke to you at a certain point in your life, we would like to know more. You can find us on the Twitters at our... brand. I was going to say our brand new shiny account, but it's been around for a while, Joe. You can find us on our Twitter account at HKHSPod or on the hashtag HKHSPod. If you want to send your Callum fan fiction to Joe, Joe, how do they find you? Yes. I can be found at B Snow on my remote, and that's the letter B. And I'm at Brenna C. Gray. That's Gray with an A. And if you have anything longer, you can send it to hkhspod at gmail.com. In particular, if you are reading for book club, definitely send us your emails. 
Next week is book club week and we are reading mm-hmm. The Toll Bridge by Aiden Chambers. I am so excited to talk about this book with you, Joe. I am halfway through. I'm definitely loving it and I have absolutely no idea where it's going. I know. I know, right? I know. I'm so excited. And then in two weeks time, our next full length book, because Joe and I have decided to give ourselves like a little emotional break, a little bit of a quicker read. We are heading back to Judy Bloom world and we are reading Tiger Eyes and watching the film, which interesting factoid is directed by Judy Bloom's son. Yes, I'm actually very excited too, because we're starting to see some set images and casting notifications for the Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret movie. So yeah, right now we've only got the one Judy Bloom adaptation, but in the very near future, we will have another Brenna. I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Uh, So that's where we're at. You're reading The Toll Bridge. You're reading Tiger Eyes. You're watching the Tiger Eyes movie. And we will see you next week. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen. Bye-bye. 